everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Entrepreneur Rx. Today, I have the great fortune of speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Claiborne. She attended medical school at Case Western Reserve. Um, she completed an MD and an MA in bioethics during her four years, and then she did EM at George Washington University, where she served as chief resident during her fourth year. Yuck, a four-year EM program. Kill me now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what I really like, what I'm excited to talk about is she developed, while she was a resident, something called Nasaclip, which I'm really interested in investing in and then also learning more about, because as anybody in EM knows, God, nosebleeds are just a challenge often. So Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. I'm so excited to be here. How about that for an introduction? A four-year kill me now EM residency. <laughs> I talk to my residents all the time because now I'm faculty with University of Maryland, which is a three-year program. So I, they always talk to me about the pluses and minuses. I think I put my fourth year to good use and I love DC. So it wasn't too so, yeah, when I was applying, there was three and four years, and I, I, I applied to both, but I luckily got into a three-year program. Did you think the fourth year, I know we're going way ahead of the stuff, do you think the fourth year was really necessary? Uh, I certainly think you can be adequately trained in three years. I go. think that for a lot of people who have an interest, whether going into fellowship or going into academics or someone like me who is really into policy, that fourth year really gives you a springboard to kind of leap horse your career in the direction it needs to go while still giving you that training environment. And the fourth year is actually the year that I came up with Nasaclip. So for me, I would say absolutely yes, right? So um, not necessary, but can be beneficial. Very, that's a great answer. And you're right, it's kind of a springboard, particularly if you want to stay in academia or do a fellowship. All right, so let's back up. How how the heck did you get into, into medicine? Like, were you a, a young girl who was interested in being a physician? Give us your background. <laughs> Um, so I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. My mom's a nurse and my dad's an engineer. I would say my mom almost discouraged me from going into medicine <laughs> in the sense that she always knew how dysfunctional it was, but she was excited that I wanted to be a doc and always introduced me to her doc friends. So I'd say early on, yes, I was interested in medicine. Um, I went to Duke for undergrad and, and had this big plan to be a biomedical engineer and major in engineering. I had it all planned out. And then I got there and was like, I really don't love these math and science courses to, enough to do them all the time and only. So I ended up designing my own major in medical ethics and religion. And I think that actually set me up to have a really unique career in medicine. I always maintained the goal to go to medical school, but it was with this caveat that I was utilizing my right, right, right brain a little bit more and thinking about human beings as like people, right? As these kind of complex, you know, entities that were not just disease processes. And I think that um, that permeated through the rest of my career because I eventually, you know, I took a time off after undergrad, which I always recommend these days, especially for uh, people who are interested in medicine to kind of really think about where they want to go. I did a two-year research fellowship at NIH, and that was my first introduction to DC, which is why I love this area. I like policy, ethics, uh, end-of-life care in particular, and that was my first introduction to that on a policy level working at NIH some, on some different race-based issues with genetics. And then when I went to medical school, I was that's why I did the dual degree with medicine and bioethics. So it was strange to take ethics courses and write philosophy papers while I was in med school. But I also think it really grounded me as a human being that was learning how to take care of other human beings and not just a doc that was trying to absorb all this information and kind of um, look at people as like, what do I do? And, you know, it always results in like this, you know, this template for how I'm supposed to care for 
for other people. So I really appreciate that. And I think I've, that's how I've had a bit of a convoluted career in medicine, but one that I think really has made me an outstanding doc in the way that I'm able to, to connect with and interact with my patients currently. Yeah, you, like you said, you balance your left brain and, and right brain. I was a sociology major and, and, and I loved it. The downside, as I said, boy, if I don't get a medical school, you know, I'm going to be saying you on fries with your Coke for a long time. So I better figure something out. Um, okay. So then you did EM. Why emergency medicine? Yeah. Well, I mean, do you remember, I don't know if they did this when you were in med school, but when you first get there, they show you that chart. That's like your personality breakdown of, of like what kind of personality you have or what specialty you go into. And the first branch is, are you crazy? And the only people that are on the crazy side, you've never seen this. No, People will laugh. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Google it. Um, the only people that are on the crazy side are psychiatry and emergency medicine. Sure. Everyone else goes to the non-crazy side. And then it asks other things like, you know, like your, what kind of hours you like, do you like people, right? If you don't really like people, then maybe you're a radiologist or a pathologist and lifestyle and all that. But I definitely early on, I think I loved EM because I like to be the first person, right? To like approach a patient, figure out what's going on, deal with that differential. I like that we're, I would say, um, procedurally adept, right? We can do a lot of different procedures. We know a little bit about everything. And when you tell people you're a doctor, I think they expect you to do what we do, which is answer any question and respond to an emergency. Like when there's a plain emergency and they say, is there a doctor on the plane? They really mean, is there an emergency doctor on the plane? Like, because your cardiologist or ophthalmologist or urologist is not necessarily going to help depending on what happens. Uh, and so I liked being that kind of doc. And I also think I'm the typical ADHD, have a lot of different things I'm interested in. And I had a life outside of medicine. Uh, and I thought that the career in emergency medicine would really cater to those other interests and be able to kind of help me support the other things that I wanted to delve into while being a physician. That's a great, that's a phenomenal answer. Now I've got to go back and look up that. What 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 should I Google to look up the? I don't know. It's, it's I'll have to look it up. So I'll e um, email it to you. All but right. it's like it, it's definitely. I mean, they literally showed it to us when we first when we were like first year medical students. It was like you know how to choose your specialty. That's and classic. it was a personality breakdown <laughs> chart. All right, I'm gonna have to find that. We'll put it in the show notes. All right, so you did EM, then you were chief resident your fourth year, and then let's talk about nasoclip now for a little bit. So you came up with this idea as a as a resident. I always tell physicians. Like if you have a great idea for something to make our practice easier, let's let's chat about it. What I mean, it takes a big a it takes a big leap, and then you went past the leap. You went to like, let's do this. What you give us a story? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely have now become the person that everyone comes to in my organization when they have an idea. Like, Dr. Claymore, I think I have a good idea. What should I do? And it's because I did a lot of missteps, right? A lot of trial and error when it came to me first thinking about nasoclip. So really, this idea was born out of the frustration that you ex ex um, definitely alluded to when you talked about taking care of epistaxis or nosebleed patients. So we see over 500,000 ER patients annually in the United States, and that's just in hospital-based ER, not even urgent care. Um, so it is a pretty common ailment that we see. And docs always recognize that these patients are a pain because they're not that sick, right? Like they, the vast majority of epistaxis is anterior, meaning that the bleeding is usually going to be stopped with conservative measures. But by the time they've seen us, they've done a bunch of stuff that has made the bleeding worse. Like they've stuffed stuff up their nose. They pinched the wrong location. They put their head back instead of forward. So they're really frustrated when they come and they're like, I'm bleeding this is an emergency. And we're like, 
you're an ESI four or five, like you're going to be waiting. So um, I would tape together tongue depressors or we would make all these makeshift things to, to temporize their situation until they could be brought back to be seen. And I couldn't believe there was nothing in the market that helped people treat nosebleeds effectively that could be both used in the medical setting, but then also like at home. Like I was like, why are you actually here? You should be able to deal with this problem at home and not have to see me at all. And so that's how I came up with Nasoclip. And so um, I'll show it to you, John, but uh, people can go to nasoclip.com and a S-A-C-L-I-P and see like a video of how it works. It's basically an external nasal compression device that holds uh, customized external nasal compression and then pre-medicated sponges that go in the nose. What are they um, pre-medicated so with? So my patent covers any kind of medication, but wow. we are focused on um, oxymetolazine, which is Afrin. And that's kind of the mainstay, the first stuff that you'll go to. It's a generic over-the-counter, um, currently just FDA approved for nasal decongestion, but is actually standard of care for treating nosebleeds, right? It's an alpha agonist vasoconstrictor. So if you clear your nose of blood clots, spray Afrin up your nose, and then hold pressure, you're gonna stop that bleed a lot more quickly. The problem is it's kind of hard to spray a liquid medication or a spray up a nose that's bleeding. So we usually would put it on you know, dental rolls or cotton swabs or something and then apply pressure. And that's what this device does all in one convenient, easy to use device. And it is sized for both pediatrics and adults since nosebleeds are most common in kids ages two to 10 and older adults 60 to 80. Uh, and so this is something that the patient themselves can put on in triage or a triage nurse can give to the patient. It doesn't require me as a doc to intervene and they can have it in place for 10 to 20 minutes and then remove it and check for bleeding. So by the time they see me, their problem is likely solved. And because this is over the counter, I can send them home with it. And so they can actually use it at home. And so our current plan is we're, we're pre-revenue. We're not in the market yet, but we're going to be launching into the market next year. And we're going to first target the medical channel. So we believe this has a pretty large market, probably a $5 billion combined medical and consumer market. It might be even larger than that if you consider that one in three U.S. households has someone with common recurrent nosebleeds. So this is something that I would consider the band-aid of nosebleeds, right? So anyone that has common nosebleeds, but also school nurses, sports medicine, sports trainers, docs like me, um, along with the everyday mom and dad or a caretaker with an, an elderly person that's on anticoagulants or blood thinners, they're going to want to have nasoclip on hand so they can deal with that nosebleed uh, emergency quickly and effectively and not have to come to the ER. Did you ever wonder, um, as you were thinking through this, like, okay, someone had, someone has to do this already. Oh, yeah. I was shocked. One of the first things I did was a patent search, right, to look to see what was available or what had been patented. And there was really nothing that did this combination of medication with compression. And then the way that the device looks for me, um, where it's uh, compact, it doesn't obstruct the mouth or the eyes and can be sized for pediatrics and adjustable where you control how much pressure you apply. That was nowhere in, in the literature. So that, that's one of the first steps that I did. So when you asked like what, how I really tackled this, the first thing I did was I approached one of the faculty members that ran our innovation center, Dr. Neil Sika. He was my attending at the time and is now serving as one of my medical advisors on my board. And he said, okay, we're going to get you in touch with um, our OTT office, off, Office of Technology Transfer, and they have, you know, a, a collaboration with one of the uh, law firms in DC. And that's how I got my first provisional patent. Now, fortunately, because I was a resident and not a faculty member, 
Um, I was not employed by the university. So my IPs 100% applied to my company, which was key when moving forward later on. Um, if I was a faculty member, I would probably have had to share some of that IP with the institution. Um, but because I was a resident, I didn't do that. And then I submitted the idea first to the GW business plan competition and did really well. And that's where I got my initial kind of traction. And from there, we did the uh, local DCI core and went on to participate in the National Science Foundation I core. And I highly recommend that program for anyone who has this kind of uh, med tech idea. It's going to be a process that helps you focus on customer discovery to ensure that before you pour your blood, sweat, and tears and any money you have into this idea and patenting it, that is a actual real solution to a real problem that people will pay money for. And so that forced me to really talk to like, you know, go out and talk to other docs, talk to parents, talk to coaches, talk to trainers, talk to pharmacists. Like, you know, what do people do when they ask for this problem? And then verify like, you know, is there a gap, right, in the solution in the market that is needs to be filled and does Nasaclip do that? And so I did that. And then from there kind of built the company. But I also was at the same time juggling, you know, graduating, going on to my new faculty position. And I had a, a kind of period of two to three years where my focus was just getting my intellectual property secured. And, um, kind of still practicing medicine, right? I hadn't fully jumped in in the beginning. And it wasn't until around 2020 when I had the opportunity to do an accelerator program with uh, TEDCO, which is a Maryland state-based uh, initiative that it really, you know, moved forward. Um, but I did spend a lot of time, you know, kind of piecemealing, like in the, on, having this be like a back burner project. But there were a lot of people who always said, that's such a good idea. I can't believe that doesn't exist. You know, you could go on Shark Tank or I see this as the Band-Aid of nosebleeds. There's a huge market. And I always got that positive feedback. And ultimately I was like, you know what? I've heard it enough. And I see it every time I have a nosebleed patient, right? I'm always like, I wish I had one of my prototypes here so I could use it on you. So I knew, I knew that I really had to kind of go full force in and dedicate myself to make it successful. So in 2020, uh, right during the pandemic is where I really started focusing on the company. And it also coincided with me um, delivering my second child. So, you know, another thing that I had mentioned to John is I have two young children, two and three. And so I talk a lot about the challenges of being a female physician, a black female physician, and now a black female physician entrepreneur. And, and I mom. did this all while growing my family yes, and a mom, right? And so um, one of the, the things that I gave as far as feedback to some of these programs that are targeted at, at entrepreneurs is they always want you to be full-time, like 100% like a CEO of your company. But for me, I was like, I got to pay student loans. I have a mortgage. I have kids. And the only reason I qualified for this program is because I did it during my maternity leave, which is something that us as women do all the time. We just hustle and make it happen. Um, and since I will say to Tedco's credit, they've acknowledged that and have changed some of their regulations. So it's easier for people like me and women to be, um, to be qualified for their programs because they understand that, you know, yeah, you might be getting full-time effort to your company, but that still means that you may be paying the bills by doing another job. And I also explained to them that me maintaining my clinical practice helps me as a CEO, right? It gives me credibility as a doc, as you know, especially in emergency medicine, 
Other docs don't really respect you as much when you don't have some clinical uh, practice when you're talking to them about a clinical solution. And then um, I also eventually applied for NSF SBIR phase one money. And so I got a grant in 20, in March of this year for $256,000. And I was able to be a PI on that project because of my academic affiliation. So there's some benefits to maintaining it. Um, but yeah, 2020 was our big year of acceleration and we were able to secure the grant funding and then um, a a, we did a, a pre-seed investment for NasaClip, and uh, we're using those current funds to pilot our, pro, our prototypes in a chain of urgent cares in Houston, Texas, as well as a healthy volunteer study um, outside of uh, UT Austin, or I'm sorry, UT San Antonio. And then we'll be using that data to help us launch into the market. So since 2020, I'd say think things are moving along much more quickly, but it's been a it's been a, a learning curve. And I think that um, not something I really expected, right? I think that I, I maybe thought, oh, this will always be my pet project. And now it is definitely my full-time job. I do still practice uh, clinically, but part-time. Um, and I continue to see a need for it every time I have a nosebleed patient. So I cannot wait till we get into market so I can start using it on people regularly in the ER and then sending them home with it and be like, don't come here and get COVID, like stay at home and treat your nosebleed with nasoclip. That's so cool. So a couple of things you said that was interesting. So there's a book out by Adam Grant. Now, one of our previous guests turned me on this book. It's called The Originals. So I always worked when I did other business things. And my theory was, well, one, I've got to pay the bills to literally exactly what you said, uh, although you're much more eloquent. Um, but I said to him, he was a guy and I said, oh, you burned the ship. I mean, he you know, I have two people like this. They bailed out of medicine completely. One in medical school, one the moment they graduated. I said, wow, you really burned the ship. And I said, that to me, it seems like it makes you a little bit more, you know, come hell or high water, this is going to work. And he said, well, read the book, The Originals, because they've actually studied this. As it turns out, entrepreneurs who keep their full-time job, at least for a while, and then talk about Steve Wozniak, tend to have a higher success rate because they have less pressure on them to put food on their table because they 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 have their full time job, but they have a part time job. Something's giving them money, and they can focus, like you said, on their on their entrepreneurial passion. So it's a really interesting perspective because I always thought, well, I never really had the burn the ship mentality. So therefore, yeah, probably could have done it a lot better had I done that. As it turns out, probably not true. Mm hmm. I absolutely agree. And I mean, I understand the urgency when it's like, I have no other way out. I have to make this business work. Like I understand why that is a motivator for some people, but for me, I think understanding the changing landscape of medicine and um, how Nasoclip works on the ground is important. And I also think it's important for me to understand as a clinician, how this works in practice and how that changed during COVID, right? Like think have changed substantially during COVID, and I wouldn't really be as aware of that if I wasn't still practicing clinically. Not to mention the, the credibility that I have as a practicing clinician saying, this is how I recommend you use nosebleeds, and, and then the other relationships that I build within the academic uh, community as an ER doc that has this uh, solution that I can introduce through those different veins. So um, I agree. I think for me, I think it's different for everyone. I understand why for some um, it makes sense to burn the ship, but uh, I try to 
tell people, especially who are coming from medicine, there's no prescribed method and you need to kind of forge your own path. For me, you know, I did this really atypically. It was back burner and now it's become, you know, the main thing that I'm focused on. But I do think that it's been my my experience in medicine so far, my experience as a mom, right? My All the things that I have that are kind of not just related to the company that have made me successful as the CEO and founder of Nasaclip. And that also includes my struggles as, you know, a Black female founder. We have a lot lot more difficulty securing funding. Um, statistically, right, we get uh, like Black founders in general get less than 1% of venture capital. Uh, we have to put a lot more effort into getting money, even if we have maybe what you would consider as qualified as an idea. And so for me, um, part of why I want to be successful is I'd love to serve as that example of Black excellence, right? Of someone who's kind of beat the odds when uh, coming from a demographic that's been underrepresented and underfunded in this space. And I want to knock it out of the park, not just because I think Nasaclip is a genius, you know, solution to a very common problem and can be a global brand name for nosebleed rescue, but also because I'd like to position myself to have a great exit and then be financially positioned to reinvest in other people of color and female founders, since I think that's an excellent way to build generational wealth. Yeah, here, here. That's that's a, a great roadmap. What has been, what was your biggest surprise doing this, being an entrepreneur? What was your like, wow, I didn't see that one coming? Um, I would say that I, I think everyone in medicine thinks what we do is really hard, right? We go to a lot of school, we spend a lot of effort and we work a lot of hours. I think that entrepreneurs work even more hours, right? There's like no off time. Like you're never off. You're sending emails in the middle of the night, some of it healthy and not healthy, right? I actually talk a lot to residents about wellness. I do think it's equally as important as an entrepreneur that you have some work-life balance because as my board tells me all the time, if I'm not okay, the company is not going to be okay. Um, but I do think I was surprised that, um, because I thought I came from a background where I already did things that were really hard, that this wouldn't be as challenging. And I think the amount of time and effort that it requires, I really respect everyone else that's an entrepreneur because you really do have to work all the time and you have to work very hard in order to like make it through the roadblocks that you're continually kind of coming up against. Yeah, it's funny. It's, you know, there's this Ray Kroc quote. They said, oh my gosh, you're an overnight success. And he said, well, 30 years was a long night. And <laughs> it, you know, for the folks who are successful, oftentimes it does retrospectively look kind of, oh, easy. You know, you have this idea, you found, you did a patent search, nobody else did it. Then you made the product. Now you're a gazillionaire. And, you know, it's like, okay, God, if you only knew how many right. times I talked to the ceiling fan at night and sometimes it answered back, like, I, I don't think unless you do it, you really get a sense of like, you know, it, med medicine's hard. And I think we have a great, I think physicians have the great building blocks to be entrepreneurs. Um, but entrepreneurs is being entrepreneurs tough as well. Like, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it can be isolating as well because there's no one that's doing exactly what you're doing. And so, especially as you know, the boss, I recently joined a really great group in Maryland. That's kind of like our uh, YPO like groups, young presidents organization because of that, right. You feel, you can feel kind of isolated as the person who's at the helm that doesn't necessarily always have someone else to bounce ideas off of. And having that community of other entrepreneurs or, you know, other people who are forging their own path with their businesses, uh, 
even if it's not in the same industry, it can be helpful to feel like, okay, I have someone who might understand a little bit of what I'm dealing with, even though it's not the exact same thing that I'm doing. And I don't feel as alone or afraid that I'm, I'm messing up or that I'm fumbling or misstepping or that I may not make it because there's a lot of other people out here trying. And a lot of them are successful. I mean, a lot of them aren't, but a lot of them are. And even uh, those who are not successful initially end up, I think oftentimes getting that entrepreneurial bug and then being a serial entrepreneur. And if their first idea doesn't work, something in the future does. Yeah, exactly. What is what's your sense of burnout and entrepreneurism? I at least for me, this extracurricular thing was always a hedge against burnout because I didn't really, yeah. I didn't really, I haven't really experienced it. I've done it a long time now. I mean, there's days when I walk out of there and go, you know, just shoot me now. But for the most part, I'm pretty enthused about going in and working shifts. What's your yeah. now that you're doing part time? What's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the status of Madison right now um, is really kind of discouraging after COVID. I have not seen this level of burnout and cynicism within physicians and like ever. And I'm a pretty young doc, so I, I'm not speaking from tons of years of experience, but I'm a really optimistic person and someone that always was kind of preaching about, well, you know, we still have this going on or, you know, at least you're not dealing with the problems that you see your patients dealing with every day, right? Like the basics are covered. I'm not hungry. I I'm sheltered. I I'm safe. Um, but when you go into work every day and we're dealing with nursing shortages and everyone's angry and there's just not enough supplies and you get really cynical and start to kind of like be a dreading work before you get there, I think that's dangerous. And I think a lot of people are there all over the place. And so for me, being an entrepreneur has been hugely protective for me being able to still work clinically because if I didn't have this, I guess, exit is what it is, right? Out of medicine, if I need, I might be losing my mind. I mean, I think it's really hard to look at a career in medicine right now and just say, I'm going to be a clinical workhorse and put 20 years in in emergency medicine. Like that is not even viable anymore. You almost have to have a multifaceted career or something else you're doing to bounce the work that you do in the hospital because there is a lot of burnout. Now on the, the flip side, I do think that entrepreneurs can burn out because they're trying to take on too much at once, but usually because whatever you're, you know, for me, the invention or what you're doing, you have a passion for, um, you tend to be not as likely to burn out because you're so excited about it, right? Like I, I can get tired of like the work that I'm doing related to my company, but this is my baby and I want to see it successful. And so I tend to be excited even if I am tired. Um, whereas for medicine, if you're not feeling as connected to that clinical work and not not getting like good interactions when you're there, um, you might be asking yourself like, why am I doing this? Uh, and I think that that that's hard. And it's sad to me because I love emergency medicine still, right? I think being an ER doc keeps you grounded, keeps you humble. Um, it reminds you of uh, the privilege you have as Gratitude. a physician, especially an entrepreneur. And it also shows you what I would consider the extremes of human nature, right? We see like the most devastating things that can happen to human beings, right? Diagnosing someone with cancer, telling um, parents that their child has died, uh, dealing with molestation or abuse. But then you also get to see people who've been married for 65 years that are still doting on each other, miraculous things that happen that I can't explain, or a little girl that is like so excited that I'm her doctor because I'm like a real live, you know, Doc McStuffins to her. And she's just beaming because I come in in a white coat and I'm her idol. Those are like huge extremes of, I think, emotion that we experience in our job. And I've always really liked that. And so it disappoints me that I'm not enjoying it as much. And I hope that 
um, moving forward, we'll have some more stability within healthcare, or at least some adjustments to our healthcare structure so that I can get back to enjoying that and still do it, uh, you know, occasionally while I continue to grow my business. Well, and you were, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you were kind of a ground, not kind of, you were a ground zero during the pandemic. And you said, if I can share this, that you did it very, very pregnant. Um, yeah. That had to be, I mean, I always say Phoenix was hit hard, but we weren't New York or D.C. I mean, you guys really mm-hmm. got crushed. Yeah, I, I worked at uh, PG County Hospital, which was one of the hardest hit hospitals in Maryland. It's just outside of DC. And we had we were carrying about 50% of the COVID positive patient load during the first wave um, of the entire University of Maryland medical systems. There were so many COVID positive patients at our institution, they had to open up other hospitals that were closing to make like COVID hospitals. So that I was pregnant at about six months pregnant when COVID hit, and I had two other colleagues that were pregnant at the same time. So for all of us to leave would have been pretty devastating to our colleagues. So we we stuck it out. I think also we didn't really know what the real risk was. This is back in, you know, you know, uh, you know, February, March of 2020. And then I delivered my daughter in May of 2020 uh, and got like a little bit of a hiatus. And I totally thought I would come back from maternity leave and COVID would be over. <laughs> and it wasn't. And we continue. So, you know, I, I have my, my, my COVID, my pandemic baby is, is two years old. That's how long we've been in it. And so um, to kind of go through that stress of having to be in that intense clinical environment and, you know, working in what was ultimately a dangerous situation for a long time. And fortunately, all of us delivered healthy kids. None of us had uh, poor sequela and our colleagues really stepped up in the end. They, they kind of pulled us back from intubating. Um, so we wouldn't be doing as high risk procedures, but we were still in an environment surrounded by COVID all the time prior to the vaccine being available. And so that was nerve wracking. And um, that's what, that's what EM docs do all the time though. I mean, we, we, even now, like with monkeypox, people are like, what is this? Like, how dangerous is it? It's like one other thing that I'm like, I'm like, I can, it's not as life-threatening, but I'm like, I cannot get monkeypox and my kids cannot get monkeypox. And we're dealing with a lot of patients in DC. We have the, you know, highest rates per capita right now in the country. And so it's just one thing after another. And I I do want to always commend all of my colleagues, not just physicians, but everyone that's on the front line in health care because a lot of us have been doing selfless work for a long time and the burnout is real. And so um, for me, it was interesting to be, you know, um, deliver a child during the pandemic, to be raising kids during the pandemic and then growing my business. But I think fortunately for me, uh, ultimately those have all been positive things and everything has been working out well. Uh, But I do think there's a lot of uphill battles that we will continue to have to climb because COVID's not going anywhere and that impacts not just medicine, but my business and life in general. No, it's interesting. I mean, when I was at kind of your stage, HIV was the big, the scourge. So when I was in medical school and residency, you know, that was a great unknown. And, and, you know, now finally it's, you know, we can, I think, say it's basically curable um, um, with PrEP, but um, knock on wood, you know, the COVID, the, the, the pandemic will start to recede even more than it is today. So, and you know, we'll live to fight another day, but you're right. I have to give, you know, all our colleagues a lot of credit because it's been a rough few years. And I've had another guest say that, you know, there's almost a backlash against a lot of healthcare professionals now, and people are more argumentative than ever coming into the emergency department. And I I, I don't know about you, but I quit asking people if they've been vaccinated or not, because I, I would... I couldn't help myself but be frustrated when they came in symptomatic and so like, no, I didn't get the vaccine. You know, we're being targeted by whatever theory they had. And I'm like, stop asking. No good will come from you asking. 
Mm-hmm. I totally identify with that, John. And I mean, I, I think it's hard. I, I, I don't know if I could practice in some regions in the, of the country. I, I happen to be in an area where we have higher vaccination rates, but I'm still that doc that's like, I need you to get vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, you know, this, you, you still can die from COVID. It can have, you know, really negative um, sequela if you're not protected. And even now, right, with the rollout with the pediatric vaccines, there's still a lot of hesitancy. And that's why uh, during the pandemic, I ended up doing a lot of media. So because I was pregnant, I did a couple of interviews about what it was like to be a frontline pregnant ER doc. And from there, I ended up doing um, a lot of um, interviews on CNN, MSNBC, Yahoo Finance, CBSN. And I thought it was really important to represent an African-American you know, physician that was talking, first of all, about issues that hadn't been paid attention, in my opinion, in the media as much as they should be about disparities that we're seeing in COVID, but also to encourage communities of color that were pretty hesitant in the beginning about the vaccine, about what I thought was needed, because not everyone has our knowledge, right? I I also talked a lot about um, death and dying and end-of-life care, something that I think we do really poorly in this country, Uh, and COVID brought that to the forefront again, because uh, not just because of the number of people that died, but because you really had to make decisions ahead of time about what you wanted and how to grapple with the idea of your mortality. And so I always encourage everyone to have, you know, an advanced directive and, and to no matter what age you are, have talked to your family about what your wishes are, because having those conversations with me in the middle of an emergency is not ideal. Or, and yeah. it was extremely hard to do that in the middle of COVID. Um, and so me going on the media and talking about that and bringing that up from the perspective of a black physician was really important. And it's something I continue to do because I see a need for not just representation on TV to represent, you know, my demographic, but also to uh, connect with, I think, communities that had had historically trust issues with the healthcare system for very good reasons, but also don't necessarily always have access to the knowledge and data that should help them make the best decisions for themselves and their families. Yeah, you know, I know I do a lot of Native American communities and they had very logical distrust for the U.S. healthcare system. And you look back at their history and I'm like, yeah, I get it. African-Americans the same way. I mean, you go back to the syphilis experiments. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to, I don't even know the phraseology for that because it wasn't an experiment. It was ridiculous. But yeah, you, there absolutely should be trust issues because you've been, you know, it's once bitten, twice shy. So right. yeah, yeah, it's good you're out there doing that. Thank you, John. Was that, a, was that a difficult transition? I've done a little bit of media myself and um, and I enjoyed it, but it was, I don't know, I always I always watch the clips of myself and be like, ugh, like <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a face for radio. Yeah, I, I think that I always in the moment think I'm doing a bad job, but then I'll get great feedback. And so I've, I've learned to be more confident. I always was comfortable do, you know, doing lectures, doing a lot of of public speaking. And so it's kind of a skill set that I've, I've fallen into late in the same way that it's been a, a skill set as far as being a CEO and founder. But it's another attribute, I think, that has made me really successful as an entrepreneur and founder of my company is the ability to articulate myself, speak clearly, and be able to communicate with multiple people, no matter what their background or knowledge base is, not just about my technology, but whatever it is that I, I want to uh, make sure that I'm getting clearly um, transcribed to them. So I've, I've liked it. I, I, I don't have as much time to do it as I want. I think my biggest issue is my time constraints, like <laughs> being a mom, still practicing clinically, running this company, and then I, I do the media when I can. Um, but that is a challenge that a lot of people have. And, and I'll take that. I mean, I think these are, these are good problems for me to have. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the difference between us was I always think I was doing a great, great job during the moment. Then I watched it after and be like, oh, you may have oversold yourself on that one. The um, Yeah, after listening to all you've done, I'm never going to complain about my time management again, because I think first off, for all your moms out there, I don't know. And, and physician moms, I don't know how you do it, because being a mom is a full time job, period. And, uh, and then add everything else to it. So hats off to you. you it is. It is. And I want to encourage moms to always ask for help, right? I, I get asked a lot, like how I do this. And it's, it's really that I had to get to a, a point where I realized, um, and this is true as a, a entrepreneur and founder as well. You have to be able to delegate work at some point. Like, so I have a lot of support. I have, you know, my parents that are very active in my kid's life. I have a live-in nanny. That's amazing. Like there's a lot of components that go into allowing me to do what I do. Um, but I, I want my daughters, I have two daughters, right? I want them to look at me and understand that you can do anything you want in life. And, you know, being a woman by no means handicaps you in any ways. I think it's like our superstar power. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a superpower. Um, well, Liz, where can people learn more about you? Cause you have a phenomenal story. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah. So you guys can go to nasaclip.com, N-A-S-A-C-L-I-P.com. And you can find all about uh, nasaclip there. I'll have some clips to some of my media. You also can get on our list to be uh, one of the first to order nasaclip when it comes to the market next year. And certainly if you're from an organization that would like to find out more about our fundraising efforts. We are actively fundraising and have a round going on. Um, I would love any support when it comes to helping me make uh, Nasaclip a global brand name for Nosebleed Rescue. And then I also will be um, in short order launching drliz.com, which kind of will display a lot of my other background as far as ethics, media, um, some of the teaching and my mom experiences. So uh, nasaclip.com for now and in the future, drliz.com. Drliz.com, I love that. All right, well, thank you very much. This has been a total blast. I really appreciate it. And congratulations, you had a ton of success. I appreciate it, John. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.